neuroscientist in your mind, doing experiments to understand how the brain works. Did you picture this lab with a pipette, a brain, or a model animal? For some neuroscientists, none of these are in the scene when they explore the brain. It's rather a scene with computers and equations. In today's episode, we will explore the field of theoretical neuroscience, which uses mathematical and computational techniques to understand the brain. Our guest is Dr. Larry Abbott, a pioneer in the field of theoretical neuroscience and also a co-director of the Center for Theoretical Neuroscience at Columbia University. You're listening to Neuron Air, a podcast made by students and postdocs at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York. Don't forget to follow us on social media and visit our website at neuronair.org. Welcome to Neuron Air. It's our pleasure to host Dr. Larry Abbott in this episode, who is actually invited to give a talk at our neuroscience department today. And he also kindly accepted to be our guest for our podcast before his talk. We are your hosts today, two graduate students at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. I'm Warren Weiss. I'm Shaydan Ertikir. Dr. Abbott, thank you for sitting down with us to talk about your research. Sure, yeah, thanks for having me. So just to begin, what would you say the main motivating questions are behind your research? Yeah, I think I just like to figure out how things work. You know, when I was a kid, whenever my parents bought a new appliance or anything, I always took it apart. And then I was always terrified whether I could get it back together again. <laughs> you know, I've just always kind of wondered how things work. And, and this is a fantastic system to wonder about that. So I, I think the underlying motivation is just that tinkering with things and trying to figure out how they work. I think it's amazing to see how this innate curiosity could lead to amazing discoveries in science. So before diving into specific research questions, it will be helpful to learn about the field in general. Can you please define the field of theoretical neuroscience for people who are outside of the field? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. So, you know, what we bring is mathematical analysis, computer simulation, those tools to the study of neuroscience. Obviously, neural circuits are incredibly complicated, and that's an important tool. Not to say, of course, all the experimental tools are important tools too, but this one, I think, is really an essential one in this particular system because it's so complicated. And so most of us, I certainly do work very closely with experimentalists, both not just, you know, dump the data on me and expect me to run some models, but really the whole process, thinking about the experiments, thinking about which directions to go. You know, we're, a, we're another kind of specialist in the game to help get to the answer. And I was also wondering, based on your personal experience in the field, how do you think the role of theory in the broader neuroscience community has changed over the years? That's a great question. And I think it's changed a huge amount over my time doing the field. You know, actually, the talk I'm going to give today kind of has a nice example of that. So. When I first started in the 90s, I think the role of theory was to kind of throw out ideas, to explore what can networks do, how could they compute, how could they store memories, you know, all that kind of stuff. But it was sort of on the speculative front and and kind of to, you know, lead new ideas, drive people's imagination, you know, inspire experimentalists. But of course, there's been such a revolution in techniques. My talk today is going to show kind of all of them, the genetic stuff, the connectomic stuff, the incredible imaging people can do, the manipulations. It really changes so suddenly it's like, well, we got to get this right now. You know, how does it really work? 
And actually, in, in my talk, a lot of the examples of really clever ideas in the 90s that were more speculative, you can really see now where some of them are really implemented and you see exactly how they're implemented. And I think that's exactly how theory should work, you know, throw out an idea. It may take 20 years for you to figure out what the validity of it, but some of those ideas will be very powerful. And, and then, of course, we're in the stage now of, as I say, getting it right. Of course, the general idea is right, but the implementation is, is much more specific to a particular animal or a circuit. So you said, you said before that in the 90s, a, a lot of what theoretical neuroscientists were doing was kind of just throwing ideas out there. And now we're more in a phase of confirming. So this is related to the next question, which is, there's a common criticism of theoretical neuroscience that theorists are post-dicting, which is, you know, designing models to match empirical observations rather than predicting new behaviors from theoretical principles. In an article called Theoretical Neuroscience Rising, and it, you present a good opinion about this, you talk about how this is uh, somewhat ahistorical in science in general. I think you gave the example of quantum theory, how that was a post-diction of the ultraviolet catastrophe, in a sense. And you, you note that the true value of any model is uh, how it generalizes to other systems and provides valuable new ways of thinking, rather than predicting new behavior. So I was wondering if you had an example from your own research of a model you helped develop that offered a new way of thinking about neuroscience while post-dicting rather than predicting. Let me say one thing about that. That was a Neuron article about, I don't know, quite a few years ago by now, right? Yeah. And, and actually, Neuron recently contacted me and said, hey, you know, maybe you want to update that article. And I said, yeah, I really do, because so much has changed. One thing has changed is there are more predictive models now. I mean, I was just mentioning about models in the 90s that turned out to be right, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's changed in a way. But, you know, it used to be, well, predict something, that's the ultimate test. And, and you know, if you did many great theories in physics, including general relativity and all that, it would fail that test, actually. I mean, it, it predicted some things, the bending of light, but it was based on the precession of mercury, for example. And that, that was known, you know, it was, it was after the fact. So I, I think it, it, it was a bad criterion. Anyway, in my own work, I, I'll mention old work since that, you know, that was sort of an old review. We did some stuff on, uh, synaptic depression and its role in adaptation. So adaptation was a known phenomenon. Um, you know, we didn't predict anything new, but I think we gave people new ideas about where it's coming from, where the mechanism is from. And I think it, because neuroscience is so much about mechanism, that's why, you know, this sort of post-diction is not bad. You can say, well, I knew this phenomenon occurred, but I had no idea why. And of course, back in those days, when I wrote that review, you couldn't do the manipulations you can do now. You know, you now can say, I think this cell type is really important in this phenomenon. Fine, you know, we'll silence that cell type or activate that cell type. That wasn't possible back then. So, so I would say the game has also changed in that regard. I actually liked what you wrote there a lot. I think it provided me a better perspective. You know, earlier I was thinking that if a model just replicated something that we observe in the brain, I was considering it less compared to the models that can predict something new. But I like the view that you provide in the paper because it changes my focus to thinking whether it improved the way I think in science rather than just using a binary rigid criteria such as post-dicting versus predicting. You know, for me, both both judging my own stuff, but also if I read a paper, I just want to know, you know, has it given me a new insight into how this thing works? And, you know, even if it's not completely right, the idea, sometimes, you know, I say, you know, yeah, that's a better way for me to think about this circuit or this mechanism. 
you know, it's kind of in the eye of the beholder that way, though. <laughs> yeah. So most of these studies that you did are coming from beautiful collaborations, right? You're a very good collaborator and good collaborations usually lead to very creative findings. I think the dynamic clamp technique that you developed with Dr. E. Marder at all could be a very good example here. I actually did my master's in a lab that used Dynamic Club, and it was so amazing to see this powerful method at the beginning of my basic neuroscience training and to be able to manipulate and simulate neural activity in real time. I was so impressed. Regarding these collaborations between experimentalists and theorists, what are some common barriers to forming good collaborations in your opinion, and how can we overcome these barriers? Yeah. You know, I, I've been incredibly lucky throughout my whole time in neuroscience. I, I've just had amazing collaborators. And, you know, as a theorist, that's essential. I was just going to talk about the dynamic clamp a bit and then I asked you a question. That was a perfect example where even I came from very different fields. We talked for about a year before we made any sense to each other, but she was willing to put in that time. And I guess I was willing to put in that time. And one day we just went to lunch and I sort of came at these things from the equations and she came in and knew about, you know, actually putting electrodes into cells. And we just said, hey, we can build this thing. So what you see is collaborate with a, a good experimentalist, but you've got to find somebody you can talk to. So what I always tell my students is really look for that. Somebody could be an absolutely fabulous experimentalist, a fabulous person even. But if I feel like I just can't communicate on a very, you know, kind of intense level and just say, it's not going to work. There's nothing wrong with the person. There's nothing wrong with me. It's just not going to work. So, you know, I think it's a very interpersonal relationship. It's like making a friend, you know, that you don't really know what clicks, but, but sometimes it clicks. And so I would say, don't underestimate the interpersonal part of it, not just being a great scientist doing great experiments. Of course, that's important, but I look for people that I just have a kind of a really good communication with. That's very interesting. So you are saying that it actually happened very spontaneously, right? You two were just having lunch one day and then came up with this idea. I think it's a very good example. And hearing that example also makes me think about the importance of environments in addition to interpersonal skills. I think there is a big role of academic institutions to create environments that can help collaborations across different fields. Actually, I just remember that last year in the summer, I was traveling in the Netherlands. I visited a university there and I saw that the students don't have their offices shared with their lab mates. They're rather matched with students from different labs in their offices. They make students on purpose to encourage them to get together, discover different fields and extend their horizons. And maybe this is very important, right? Because it encourages people to get together in a very casual way, just like in the example that you gave. I agree with you entirely. In fact, you know, in, in COVID, sometimes people say, well, you theorists are lucky. You know, we don't do experiments. So we can, yeah, and we can work. It's fine that way. But we don't do what you just said. We don't bump into somebody in the hallway or in the elevator and say, hey, what are you working on? And often the greatest stuff comes from that. So my advice to a theory graduate student or something is just talk to people. You know, every time you bump into one of your co-students, say, hey, have you discovered anything? What's new? A lot can happen that way. And we try to make a very open door policy here. For example, sometimes either postdocs or students, when they're evaluating data, they'll actually move over to our theory center and take a desk. And then they're among all the postdocs and students, you know, they can ask, they can 
exchange ideas. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think the layout of space is really important. And you know, my advice is just take the time to to go sit next to somebody at lunch that you don't really know and see what they're doing. Yeah. So these past couple of questions, we've been talking a little bit about, I guess, uh, I don't want to say conflicts or tension between theorists and experimentalists, but I, th- I think that's certainly there. And uh, something I was interested in, uh, since you've been in theoretical neuroscience for about 30 years and you've seen this, this explosion and in the increased relevance of, of theoretical neuroscience in neuroscience as a whole, I was wondering what do you think the greatest contributions of theoretical neuroscience have been to our understanding of neuroscience in the brain as a whole? Yeah, I think the basic point sounds trivial, but the mathematics behind it is not so much. It's really an ability to think about collections of neurons, populations of neurons doing a calculation. You know, anybody who looks at at a brain is going to say, obviously, it's not one neuron doing doing the work. But building the techniques that allow you to see, you know, this is a very high dimensional system. None of us are good at envisioning high dimensional systems. And so working out the mathematics of that figuring out where your intuition in high dimensions, your intuition can often be terribly wrong because we don't picture it that way. And so I would say the greatest, the contribution that I can see is really that is the tools for thinking about high dimensional systems and mapping from recordings onto population vectors and state space representations. That caught on very fast. I give the experimentalists a lot of credit for this because I think at first people would say, wait a minute, just tell me about spikes and rates. You know, don't tell me about this state space and vectors. But they got it a lot, you know, most of them. And, you know, I think it's the language of circuits now. That's a big advance. Having talked about circuits and these tools and systems that let us explore the circuits, when I look at the model systems that you work on, I see that you pick various model systems that have very well-organized circuits, such as the mushroom body in the fly olfactory system and cerebellum. They all consist of these beautiful parallel structures, right? So you obviously pick the most well-organized circuits that exist in the world. Can you maybe explain to us what the key features of these circuits that allow you to make powerful discoveries? Yeah. So I'll give you the true answer and then I'll give you sort of a party answer. The true answer is I'm really good at picking collaborators, you know, and they picked the animals. So honestly, that's the way I work. If I've arrived at beautiful systems, it's through beautiful collaborators. But anyway, um, so this is something about theoretical neuroscience that we haven't gotten to. If you're a lab, you know, you pick a, a, an organism, it might be a mouse, it might be a fly, and, and that's what you do. So as a result, sometimes there can be a parallel lines, you know, in, in progress in neuroscience. And I think that, you know, one of the big jobs of, of the theoretician is to cross over and say, hey, you know, there's something cool discovered in a fly. Maybe, maybe there's some idea of that that you can apply to a mouse. I think it is almost an obligation for us to move cross species because the rest of the field can't do that. You can't close down your mouse lab and, and open a fly net lab next week. So I've tried to do that and I've tried to cross fertilize the ideas as much as possible. And, you know, I kind of enjoyed it at all levels. I think another thing people make mistake in theory, sort of there's one theory that you would apply for everything from humans to, you know, C. elegans. That's not true. You know, you would tailor the techniques to the level of the study of the organism and you're going to use different techniques to understand a person than you're going to do to understand a fly. 
So you certainly see a value in moving across species. You also move between animals and machines and study the principles of the brain and learning in both artificial and biological networks in your research. And you also care about making artificial neurons more relatable to biological ones. And I have two questions around this. So first, is it possible to make artificial networks resembling biological ones? And the second question is whether this is a desirable goal. Do we really care about them resembling each other? I guess the second question is also related to this idea of interpretability in computational neuroscience. So, for example, we have these ultra-fast deep networks performing black box type analysis. They're not really interpretable because we don't know how they're doing what they're doing. However, the question is, does it really matter because they're able of doing things in a way that is comparable to humans? So what are the reasons for still looking at other network models that are understandable? Yeah, okay, so let me let me extend because this is sort of an extension of what we were just talking about, that you don't necessarily apply the same techniques to all systems. So, you know, today I'm going to talk about a fly circuit. I think it would be a little crazy to tell you the truth to apply a machine learning to that circuit you know it's a small number of neurons we can identify them it wouldn't be the appropriate level on the other hand you know if you're talking about the the primate visual system i think it would be equally crazy to try to figure out what every neuron in that system's doing you know it's just not the right level of description And so I think once you accept multiple levels of description, you kind of get over this. Yeah, people talk about, well, we're going to replace that we don't understand the primate visual system with the fact that we don't understand this network that does object recognition or whatever. But, you know, that that's a fantastic achievement. The fact that we have machines that can get to human level on stuff is amazing. And to me, I think that On occasion, the machine learning people get an idea from neuroscience. That will happen. I don't think they're going to end up with machine learning devices that look, you know, just like brains. There's no point in doing that, but they'll get ideas. And for us, I, I think it's just an incredible tool. I'm a big fan of that tool for for one reason that you mentioned, which is it allows you to test ideas at a very high level. It used to be, you know, if I had an idea of, oh, here's a new kind of synaptic plasticity, maybe it does X. I would try it in such a simple model that it wouldn't be really challenged. But now I could try it on some some machine learning system that does human level tasks and say, does it do anything? You know, it's a, it's a much more rigorous test. So my approach to machine learning is to take that basic framework, but stick in biological elements and say, what do they do in this context of a very rich, complicated system? You know, it's at early days, but but I think that marriage is going to be really, really something very, very good. So, for for example, for like convolutional neural networks, like these object recognition, the 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 fact that if you add random noise to an input image and it completely ruins the object output, the labeling, that's not necessarily uh, something that concerns you, uh, at least if it's happening. Sure, yeah, no, sure, it, it concerns you know concerns you. It, it's sort of interesting to tell you the truth that that maybe you know you can you could be a human being without really being a human being you know that that these systems can identify objects as pretty much as well as you or I but they may be doing it by a very different system 
And I think those, you know, those adversarial examples point that out, that they, they may be using a different system. But, you know, having N equals two is better than N equals one. If we have two systems that are able to do this complicated thing, I mean, you know, figure out how they're different, figure out how one's better than the other. You know, yeah, yes, I do worry about those things, but I'm more excited about the, the possibilities than, than the mm-hmm. worry. Right. And especially with spiking networks, which, I, which is what you've been working on recently. So spikes are, are just a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, honestly, if you want to know, the most amazing thing about our brains is, you know, of course they can do amazing things, is that we do it with spikes. It's a, such a terrible way to run a brain, in my opinion. So that's a huge challenge. If you listen to my talk today, it's not spiking models. We, you know, we can, we can achieve a whole lot more without going to spiking models. Every time you go to spiking models, you know, you get all of these sort of technical problems because just spikes are, are just an ordinary way to run a network. I would love it if somebody would make a breakthrough there and, and build more robust spiking networks. So you could just flip it over very easily. That That's not true yet. So, so there's a mystery at the, I would say at the biophysical level, and it really in the fly circuits I'm talking about, it's almost more severe because they're not very many neurons. You know, I think the standard answer about spike is, oh, we got so many neurons, we got so many synapses, you know, it all just adds up. Even that is not so easy to get it to work. But in a small animal with not that many neurons, there are probably all sorts of tricks at the biophysics level that we're not completely onto yet for smoothing out the spikes. If you wanted to know what's the bugaboo, it's spikes, I think, in theory. Um, so, somewhat related to that last question, you've been publishing recently about uh, connectomics. You recently uh, co-authored a paper with a, a bunch of authors about the mind of the mouse, the futures of connectomics in mice. And in that same uh, theoretical neuroscience rising article uh, before, you mentioned that uh, in analogy with artificial neural networks, uh, connectomes may not tell you what a network does, but it may provide some other useful insight. Um, so what are the ways for making the best use out of uh, high-resolution connectome data that we've obtained in neuroscience and we are hoping to obtain? And how would you use goal-driven machine learning to uh, inform us about biological connectome data? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so, so the connectome, it's interesting. I, I didn't even remember that I'd said anything about connectome in that old article. The connectome to me, you know, when I, the reason I got involved in it is because I realized when it was, you know, obvious that the fly connectome, let's say, was coming out, I I had no idea what to do with it as a modeler. Certainly, I'm not going to build a model with every connection in there. And I would say, you know, when I wrote that earlier thing, I didn't have any idea. And it really shows you sometimes you just dump the data on the table and then you figure it out. The connectome in the fly changes everything. And and again, I mean, you know, uh, you'll see that in my talk that, being able to look at that level of detail is just completely amazing, but in ways you didn't expect. And let me give you one example from the fly that something totally unpredictable. So in flies, you cannot looking, at least the, the classical anatomists, if they looked at a, an EM picture of a synapse, they couldn't tell the transmitter type. They couldn't tell whether it was a GABA synapse or glutamatergic synapse. And that was a big limitation because it meant when you got the connectome, you'd know there was a connection, but you wouldn't know if it was excited, if it was excitatory inhibitory. So that was considered a big, a big minus. But when these EM images started coming out and there was a huge amount of data, a group uh, at Genelia uh, led by uh, Jan Funke, applied a machine learning algorithm to a ton of data and built a system that can tell the transmitter. You know, it's a, it, it, just, it just looks at synapses and tells you what, and seems to work really pretty well. 
So, you know, when you get a ton of data, you, you don't know what's going to happen. I would have never predicted that. I don't think anyone would have ever predicted that that would happen. And yet there it is. So at all sorts of different levels, you know, machine learning, I think what we can do, for example, is, is look at the statistics of connections and match them up. You know, the fairest answer is, I don't know, it's early days in that thing, but, but I've seen that essentially every discussion about fly circuits refers to the connectome now that I, that I ever have with anybody. So it just seems an amazing new opening of a new door. I think that example of using machine learning to extract the neurotransmitter information from connectomics was a very good one. You know, when I look at the history of these discoveries, such as connectomics or transcriptomics, I see that first there's this big excitement phase where we are so passionate about trying to obtain the full connectome or full genome of a species. But then once we do it, there's a phase of uncertainty where we have no idea or little idea what to do with it. But in the next phase, we actually start finding ways to extract really useful information with the application of machine learning and other computational methods. And who knows what else we will discover in the future. As you were saying, they're getting more and more useful over time. So we talked about this connectomics and networks, but you are also interested in how these networks and connections switch their behaviors, right? They start responding to a stimulus that they haven't been responding to before. They switch to a new way of functioning. When you wrote a chapter for the book called 23 Problems in Neuroscience, you picked that topic of switching for your chapter. And the name of the chapter was, where are the switches on this thing? Which I really like, by the way. As you were mentioning over there, there are huge gaps in our knowledge of switches in biological brains. Although we know about some potential ways for biasing network activity in the brain, such as gain modulation, inhibition, as you listed in the chapter, there are still critical gaps. So it's been 15 years since you contributed to this book. And I wanted to ask if you still think that this is still one of the most critical issues in neuroscience research today. And how far do you think we are from achieving the goal of discovering the mechanisms for switching in the brain? It's great you bring that up because I think it shows you, you know, when progress occurs in science, often it isn't that you answer the old questions. You just realize they were the wrong questions, you know? Yeah, this is the natural process. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I give you tons of examples in physics of that where, you know, it isn't, it isn't that you answered it. You just and, and I would say this is one of those. I, I don't know the answer to that question, but if I was going to write that article today, I think I would I would say it differently. And that... What it more looks like, and as again, as you see larger, broader range of, of neural activity in, in brains, is that, that kind of everything is sitting on top of everything. It isn't that you switch. And, and a really good example of that is that it really looks like it's true in the fly brain, it's true in the mouse brain. You know, if an animal's running, the entire brain is affected by that action. It seems completely nuts. And, and I think in those days, I would say, well, how do you switch so that running doesn't affect, you know, some part of the brain that doesn't care about running? That doesn't look like that's what's happening. And, and more, this is, again, has to do earlier, I talked about, you know, the mathematics of populations. I think nowadays what people would say is they're kind of orthogonal directions. So I can have one signal going this way and one signal going this way, and they won't interfere with each other. And that's kind of a linear view. But I think it's the 
it's probably a better. So I was thinking, well, you just turn this one off and you listen to this one. But if they're orthogonal, you can accomplish the same thing in a more population way. So I think now you would, I would ask that question by how do you arrange all these signals not to interfere with each other, even though they're simultaneously there? And in the linear picture, you would say, I just make them orthogonal. But we need to do a little better than that because it's not a linear system. And in, in a nonlinear system, you know, you can have them orthogonal, but they'll be rotated. So that's a really cool example. I'm glad you brought it up of the fact that the question has changed. Maybe we still don't know the answer, but, but I think we have a better framing of the question. You were also pointing out an important future direction, which is expanding our understanding of neural circuits from the representation of information to cognitive processing. Do you think that the lack of knowledge on switching or this omnipresence is a current bottleneck in achieving this goal? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think so. This omnipresence of these kind of running signals and all that, it's very mysterious, right, to me. This idea of many kinds of information sort of sitting on top of each other, I think it's a real puzzle. And from that, you know, we pick out the relevant stuff and, and hopefully do the relevant action. Yeah, I think that's a major question in cognition. And uh, again, this is one where machine learning might, you know, be able to help us. One thing is, uh, machine learning tends to be, you know, commercially, you, you build it for a particular task. One of the things that I think will help in the biological sense is when people is to build more general purpose machine learning that not only does the task, but identifies, you know, the thing I'm supposed to do now is talk to you. I'm not supposed to, you know, dance or something. How do you decide what the appropriate task is for a particular moment? And then we'll, we're going to see this problem because you're going to take everything in and from that have to decide, oh, I'm supposed to talk now or I'm supposed to get up and, and run out of the room now or whatever. Yeah. And before you were talking about how it seems like all of these processes seem to sit on top of each other in an orthogonal way, I was wondering, does that or how does that relate to uh, this topic uh, that's receiving a lot of attention in neuroscience recently, which is dimensionality, the, the, a low dimensionality of neural signals and how, how we can kind of combine all these things um, yeah. without interfering, even though the brain seems to communicate in low dimensional. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, you know, there's a bias there because, of course, the low dimensional stuff is the stuff we're going to be able to understand first. Um, and so I think, you know, we've been we're, we're seeing the low dimensional examples. And I think that's fine because you want to start working out, you know, where it's not too complicated. But I suspect, you know, if you're out in the world and, and you know, here in New York, dodging the traffic and, and talking to somebody and waving, you know, it, it's pretty high dimensional. There's all these tons of stuff, as we, as you said, sitting on top of each other. You know, that's where this idea of, of selecting, maybe rather than switching, I would more say selecting is really going to come out in a big way. But obviously, you want to study it from the ground up. You don't want to start with a, a hugely complicated situation. Right. So for our last questions, we're going to move to something a bit more general. So what do you think an area of neuroscience uh, that has been underexplored and would benefit from attention from theoretical neuroscientists? I feel like a lot of theoretical neuroscience research is focused on sensory systems, visual systems. And so I was wondering, what do you think would be an area that would benefit from more theoretical attention? Yeah, yeah. Another great question. Let me just tell a little, a little joke or whatever that, you know, I, I sometimes imagine there, there's some incredibly great genius mathematician, you know, doesn't know any biology and, and 
sits there. I make the she and 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 works it out and comes out of the office and say, look, I got it. You know, I have a system. It's just like a brain. It can do all these things. And then you tell this poor woman, well, but the brain builds itself. Yeah. You know, you haven't, you haven't even gotten <laughs> off the ground yet. So my answer is development. It, it's something that most theoretical neuroscience completely ignore. We just say, there's the brain. It's got, God knows how it got here, but there it is. And I have to figure out how it works. And, you know, that's a hard enough problem. That's what I do. I, I don't work in development. I don't know a whole lot about development, but it seems to me we got a whole other problem is that this thing builds itself. So that to me is, is a underdeveloped area, if I can use the same word, of theoretical neuroscience that would be cool to to work on. And, you know, it's not like they don't, they don't crosstalk because a lot of times if you're trying to say, why is a circuit like it is? Well, a lot of it is, is because it, that's, it had to be built that way, you know, and, and we may be arguing, oh, this is the optimal for this. That's the optimal for that. When reality, it's just that in order to get these accents to grow in the right direction, you know, you, know, you had to do it that way. So I, I think, you know, neuroscience would be stronger, theoretical neuroscience would be stronger if we really had a, a developmental component in, in, the theory, in the theory. So and when you say development, you mean like morphologically, like how the neurons come to be in their particular places. Uh, yep, because yeah, I think- how it wires up and, and, you know, what the constraints are that it has to, you know, not only do you have to build the right circuit, you know, but you have to find the right neuron. And, you know, there's incredible constraints there to, to be able to build this thing from nothing. Yeah, that's very interesting. I was, I was thinking that that's, I was trying to understand if that's real, because that's somewhat related to learning, right? How these circuits are kind of built. Yeah, well, so I think it's a great question. How related is it to learning? I, I don't know. You know, maybe it's a lot of the same mechanisms. Certainly, I would say the work in developments that Ken Miller has done in, in, in a way in the past and then recently has been doing it again is kind of linking it to the same ideas as learning. But we don't really know, you know, how much is, is it, uh, you know, targeting through various targeting molecules, um, that, that, that's why somebody needs to do this, you know, somebody mm-hmm. knows more about the development. Along these lines, let's say that you study the fly brain and find out some learning rules that led to the development of that network. Do you think that these rules that you discovered can apply to other species as well? In other words, do you think that there's a general code that we can crack? Yeah, yeah. My guess, you know, I don't, I don't know, but my guess is yes because it's such a basic problem. How do you wire up uh, the nervous system that you know when evolution finds us a solution tends to find it, and you know, not either it can be because evolution passed it on to you know both let's say mammals and flies, or it can be parallel evolution. And I think you know in the olfactory system, which you you talked about, mushroom bodies part of the olfactory system. There's an incredible parallel between flies and mammals that is not inherited from a common ancestor. They just evolved the same system because it's the right way to, to build an olfactory system. So I, I think that's an amazing example where you could easily say, look, a fly and a mammal, there's nothing to do with each other. And yet the systems you know, have a really one-to-one map practically between them. And there was a recent paper that you published called Evolving the Olfactory System. Just to explain in that paper, you described you build an artificial neural network with the biological constraints and you, you show that it matches the olfactory system of the fly. 
Um, so do you view that in that lineage as yeah. an interesting direction to go with? So, you know, that's a whole other re- issue, which is evolution. You know, that I could have answered. I, I put it on development because, but, you know, the other thing is, of course, how did these things evolve? And, you know, what we're taking advantage of there in machine learning, you call it learning, but you're really building a system, let's say, that does object recognition or whatever. You're really not replaying learning. You're replaying evolution, right? You're, you're saying, how did we develop a system that's so well adapted to do our vision? That We're taking advantage of that. We're saying, let's play, let's replay evolution from a machine learning standpoint. I think that's a whole other area. You know, ultimately, when we get an answer in, in biology, it always comes then, okay, but how did it evolve? You know, okay, this is how it works. But how on earth did it possibly evolve this clever system? That's always going to be the fundamental question. And uh, we're going to have to think about that, too. This is such a beautiful question, right? Actually, that was the first question that I investigated. As a grad student, we were asking this question of how neural networks evolved by comparing species at multiple levels, at the network level, single cell level, behavioral and transcriptomics level. I think it was an amazing system to explore the evolution of these circuits. Yet, as I continued my training, I realized that the question was much harder than I imagined. I think it's a very difficult question. You know, as we know more about the circuits, um, you know, we can get at this. I'm thinking of uh, Vanessa Ruta, who's at Rockefeller, has really done beautiful work on different species of Drosophila and why they want to mate with each other and not with other species, which is whole species, you know, species, whatever, how they become species. Um, but anyway, and, and it's, you know, in their sensing of the pheromones, how do they evolve to, to prefer a different pheromone or, or send out a different pheromone and identify mates of their own species? And she's done beautiful work on figuring out how the circuits have evolved in order to develop these preferences in mating preferences. Very interesting. I'll check it out. I want to ask one last question that might be helpful for trainees and students. For a beginner student who is interested in theoretical neuroscience, what are the most important skills that you would advise them to develop? And I know that some students particularly have that question of whether it's important to have skills in programming and simulations or in biology and neuroscience. And maybe you can touch on that a little bit too. Yeah, sure. The, the, let me just start with saying something that sounds completely trite, but it's incredibly true, which is, you know, follow your heart. I think students sometimes think, I ought to do this, I ought to do this. Do what excites you because you're going to be best at that. So let me just say that. But yeah, I mean, obviously you want to develop as many skills as you can. I would only say that it's harder to develop math skills later than um, than it is biology, you know? So I, I was 40 years old when I switched from being a physicist to a neuroscientist. That was, it's easier to switch in that direction. Let me just put it that way. When you say this, everybody thinks, oh, you're an arrogant physicist. You think, you know, physics harder. It's not that physics is harder. It's that physics is weirder in a way. Um, you know, it's such a, a specialized talent. I, I often like to compare it to saying, you know, somebody wanted to become a novelist, they could do it at any point in their life. And, you know, maybe they'd be a great novelist. But if somebody wants to be a concert violinist, forget it. You know, if I told you suddenly I'm going to be a concert violinist, you, you know, I'm never going to do it because that you got to do it young. And I think math is kind of this strange uh, talent like playing a violin that you got to do young so i would just say do it in the right order and then uh, you know do what excites you 
that makes a lot of sense to me. Start from the weirder one if you're gonna end up learning both fields eventually, right? But more importantly, follow your heart and passion as you were saying in the beginning. And it looks like this was what you did and you ended up where you are right now. It was a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you so much for being our guest. And I will see you later in the day at your talk. Okay, thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. We know you have a very busy day today. It means a lot. I've talked to a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. I'll see you later. Your hosts for this episode were Shay Donner and Oren. We enjoyed learning about theoretical neuroscience as it relates to the broader neuroscience community from Dr. Abbott through our discussion of so many thought-provoking ideas. Models can offer new ways of thinking about neuroscience, as Dr. Abbott so wonderfully embodies through his collaborations with experimentalists. A perfect example is his collaboration to the development of dynamic clamp method, which was a shared effort. Just as our brain must integrate the processes of all its regions to create your unique thoughts, we must talk to scientists from other subfields to create an enriching environment that will lead to creative tools and solutions. So where does the field go from here given its recent advancements? When we asked Dr. Abbott's opinion about what area is still underdeveloped in the field, his answer was ironically brain development. It's something that most theoretical neuroscientists completely ignore, yet understanding how the brain constructs itself could have repercussions in many other subfields, from learning to organoids to disease mechanisms. These are some of today's critical issues in neuroscience that theory could help solve, including one more enigma that Dr. Abbott added. The omnipresence of signals and how these signals are arranged in the brain without interfering with each other, even though they are simultaneously there. Experimentalists and theorists often exist in separate scientific circles, but we hope that our interview with Dr. Abbott can help stir up the imagination of scientists in both worlds to bring them together to help explore new frontiers in our understanding of human biology's biggest remaining mystery. Thanks for joining us today. Visit our website, neuronair.org, for more resources about today's episode and our guest, Dr. Larry Abbott. You can also follow us on social media at neuronaircast to leave comments on today's episode or to get in touch with us directly, email us at neuronairpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and review us. See you next time.